electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. It is a very busy day, everybody, and welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Brian, in for Scott once again. And as you just heard Carl say, it is a jam-packed Thursday. Really, there are three major developing stories right now. Number one, Buyers keep coming into stocks, the Fed giving the all clear and the Fed chair unveiling a new approach to inflation that would keep rates lower for longer, maybe forever. Meantime, Hurricane Laura downgraded to a category two, but it is still incredibly dangerous. Laura slammed into the Gulf Coast as a category four storm earlier today, 150 mile an hour winds. We are gonna take you live to Lafayette, Louisiana where the situation is still unfolding. And sports coming to a stop, maybe temporarily. Players in nearly every pro league choosing not to play last night in protest of the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The Milwaukee Bucks began the protest ahead of their playoffs game. Bucks owner Mark Lasry speaking to Scott Walker saying, quote, I fully support what the team is doing and I'm going to do whatever I can to help them get their message out and to try to bring about change. But as you just heard from Carl, it sounds like the NBA may be back on today. Again, everything is very fluid. And your investment committee today, Jim Labenthal, Stephen Weiss, Kerry Firestone, CEO of Aureus Asset Management, and Richard Saperstein, Hightower Treasury Partners CIO, and one of Barron's top 100 financial advisors. All right, before we get to all of that, we've got to do a quick recap of these record markets. Green, 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 green. The Dow up eight-tenths of one percent, the S&P up as well. In fact, the S&P earlier hitting a milestone of sorts, Plowing above 3,500 for the first time ever. And NASDAQ, what else? Every high is a new record high. So there you go. And even the small caps performing. And by the way, with that gain on the Dow, 247 points, even the lowly laggard Dow getting in on the action because it is now the last major index to turn positive for 2020. Jim Labenthal, all the major indexes hitting new highs. The Dow performing. Does the fact that the Dow is now in that I'm up on the year game because it's kind of these bigger, slower growth companies. Does that mean anything or just a nice media headline, perhaps? Well, look, it, it, it may be just a nice media headline if it ends after today. But if it continues into next week, what we're looking for is a sign of broadening out of the rally. Um, the tech stocks, the Apples, the Microsofts of the world that go up every day, that's wonderful. But at some point, the rest of the economy has to join uh, in the party. And so to the extent that you're seeing the transports, the industrials participate, that's healthy. It needs to continue into next week, though. We've seen too many of these head fakes, uh, and this may turn out to be just another one. So the jury's still out. Carrie, you think it's a head fake? Be the world's longest head fake if well, it is. It's, it, 
Uh, well, it's a strong day today for some of these cyclicals, and the financials are extremely strong today. Uh, we put together a little chart, I think Vinny can put it up, that shows what's been going on with breadth of the market. And we can see that year to date, only 33% of stocks are ahead of the S&P 500, and I bet the majority of those are technology name or tech or digital platform plays. In the last month, we're starting to see some move, some breath. You see, month to date, we're at 41% of stocks in the S&P are ahead of the S&P 500. But what happened in the first two weeks of August, it was much broader. 57% of S&P names were ahead of the index. Really a very, very broad move from value stocks. And they gave that back in about a week. So now we're going to have to see whether they can make up that ground and come back on track and start to really show that they can push through and last in terms of that rally. Hey, Brian. Yeah, Stephen Weiss, how much is the Um, Federal Reserve? Yeah, Jim, go ahead. Jump in here. Yeah, sorry, just because I want to point out, I mean, what Kerry's saying is factually true, and I want to see value perform, but the fact of the matter is large cap value is still down 10% year to date. And I thought of that number when you said in your opening promo, accurately, all the major indices are up on the year. You know what? This huge section of the market that includes financials, industrials, energy, it's really laboring. It is not part of the party. So when I talk about the broadening of the rally and that being an indication of health and my not yet quite believing it, I'm pointing to that 10% year-to-date decline on large cap value as evidence number A or letter A. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good point. And, and Stephen Weiss, I mean, to that end, and financials, we'll dig into a little bit deeper in a bit, and they are performing if energy, which is small but still there, and if financials can kick in, could that provide sort of that extra leg up for the market, assuming the indexes and the sectors that have been doing well continue to do so? Well, of course, because if, if more stocks go up, more groups go up, then the market goes up, assuming that the others, as you, as is in your hypothetical, go up as well. Um, look, I, Okay, let me let me clarify what I meant because I get your I get your point. Hold on, let me jump in because I get your point, and I, I agree. My question sounded okay. ridiculous, so let me let me frame it a different way. <laughs> if there's a rotation from tech to financials, that could be bad because tech is so big. Yes, they would all have to go up. So, what are the odds that there's a rotation out of one tech into another versus all of them now participating? Is that a little better? Right. Yeah, that's, that's better, and i um, happy to help you clarify that, Brian. Um, look, we've seen these mini rotations, including what's going on now today. So sure, we have some tech stocks hitting all-time highs, uh, 52-week highs at the very least, but I've got a number in my portfolio that are down a few percent. So these rotations are happening with greater frequency, but it hasn't hurt the overall market. To your point, the market's actually higher today. So... I don't know, you know, as a growth investor, I can be a value investor, I can be a growth investor. I look at single companies and their idiosyncratic risks and and positives to the story. Um, so I don't class myself as either. I happen to be in growth now because that's where I see stocks going up. So I'm a little concerned being there that we've seen these mini rotations with greater frequencies. However, the sustainability hasn't been there, and some of them just don't make any sense, frankly. So the market can go up 
if tech suffers a little bit, if tech suffers mightily, then just because of the way the numbers add up, no, you'll see some, some fading of the market. I don't think it's dramatic, though. But I do think we'll get that test coming into the fourth quarter yeah. because there was a lot of pull forward, in my view, from the work at home, uh, from companies uh, yeah. finding they can do more with technology than with, than with people in some cases. So that pull forward has been monstrous. Also, the Huawei pull forward instead of in front of the September 15 deadline. So I think you'll see some weakness in some of these tech names in the fourth quarter. Now it'll be the test in the market. Okay. That'll be buffeted, however, by a vaccine. Yeah, assuming best case scenario there, and let's all hope and pray for that. Rich Saperstein, A, do you see a test of sorts for tech in the fourth quarter coming, as Stephen alluded to? And if so, do you think we'll pass? Well, I can envision a test for the entire market in the fourth quarter because it's really rallied based on the unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimulus uh, that we've had and the expectation that earnings are going to fully recover to 2019 levels in 2021. We also have concerns about seasonality, the election, and a host of other factors, China tariffs, uh, that'll occur in the fall. But the question of whether investors should rotate from growth to value, and by the way, we're fully invested and we're overweight growth, I think occurs when the economy gets legs and actually starts to get traction where investors don't have to pay up dramatically for growth stocks. So remember, a year ago, these growth stocks were selling at free cash flow multiples of five to six and a half percent. Today, they're really selling at three, three and a half percent. Why? That's because investors are paying up for growth. But if we have a growing environment where we have sustainable growth, there should be rotation into the cyclical and more value stocks. Well, Rich, let me follow up with that because Goldman Sachs out with a macro note basically saying, while equities, primarily technology, maybe have not been as expensive now as they were since 1999 in the tech bubble, Goldman still recommends sticking with stocks over bonds, particularly with interest rates where they are. Agree or disagree with that Goldman call? I agree, and the reason why we're overweight growth is because these companies are helping everyone in coping with the COVID. And as a result of that, they are, they are having recurring revenue streams, large moats around their business, exceptionally high free cash flow levels. Like take Apple, $73 billion in free cash flow over the last 12 months. So uh, we would continue to overweight equities and the growth sector. Okay, hey, thank Brian, you very much. We've got to get to a market flash. On, hold, no, you can't, Jim. Hold on. I've got a market flash here on the NBA. I've got to get to it, Rahel Solomon. Rahel, give us the developing story. Hi, Brian. So it looks like DraftKings is popping on some news out of ESPN, among others, that NBA players will resume playing in the playoffs. Uh, the Athletic matching that reporting, saying that according to sources, NBA players in a meeting today, agree to continue playing this postseason, but want to find new and improved ways to make social justice statements. That, of course, uh, after protests after the shooting of Jacob Blake in Wisconsin, also saying that players expect games to resume this weekend. DraftKings up um, almost 2% now, but at one point was up almost 3%. Again, on this news, some reporting citing uh, players that they will begin 
playing again in the postseason after those protests, after the death of Jacob Blake. Brian, I'll send it back to you. All right. All right, Rahel Solomon on the NBA. Rahel, thank you very much. Uh, Jim, I'll get you in a second. Sorry for cutting you off, buddy. I shouldn't even have gone to Rich on that second question because of the developing story. But, Kerry, I want to get in here just for a second here, perhaps on DraftKings or that news that you just heard. Well, DraftKings is in the interesting position, as are any gaming stocks, that uh, you have both a situation where since there's not a lot of sports on TV, there are less games to bet on. But having fewer sports that people are witnessing in real life means that the market for betting, um, it has gone up. I mean, there's been just a bigger audience. There's um, a, a lot of marketing that's going on. This is an industry that I think is really um, accelerating its adoption during the pandemic, even though there have been very few games. So yeah, you know, I get that it has a jump um, there's more competition in the space. These are interesting companies. It's an interesting space. Lots of um, international competition that's going to be part of the betting movement. Uh, we are watching them all. We have not mm -hmm. bought any, but I, I think it's an impressive space to keep your eye on. Uh, the stocks have had moves from you know, up 300% to you know, 800% since the bottom. So it's, it's hard to jump in okay. right here. But I, I, you know, I see what's going okay. on. Yeah, hard to jump in right there. The NBA may resume this weekend, as soon as this weekend. All right, let's dig down into the other huge story of the day, a little deeper into the Federal Reserve, and really what was an historic change to Fed policies regarding inflation. Steve Leishman is here now with all this and what it means. Steve. Ryan, thanks. Yes, it's an historic change by the Fed to monetary, monetary policy strategy, with the Fed becoming the first major central bank to put in place an average inflation targeting regime. The committee is going to seek to achieve 2% inflation over time and may aim for inflation above 2% in order to hit that average. Here's the before and after. Before 2% was the target. Now 2% is an average target that the Fed will allow inflation to drift moderately above 2% to hit the target over time. In another big change, the Fed added in its statement that it's no longer will operate as if low unemployment means inflation will follow. In his speech, Powell explained why persistently low inflation is such a big potential problem. Inflation that is persistently too low can pose serious risk of the economy. Inflation that runs below its desired level can lead to an unwelcome fall in longer-term inflation expectations, which in turn, can pull actual inflation even lower, resulting in an adverse cycle of ever lower inflation and inflation expectations. Hard to say what the new policy means for strategy right now. It certainly suggests the Fed that's going to keep rates lower for longer, and it could mean near term some resumption of the increase of the Fed's balance sheet where it buys assets in order to drive down rates even further. So why make the change? The Fed felt it was, well, something like a hamster on a wheel there, aiming for 2% inflation, keep missing the target, and see inflation expectations drift lower, lower. It's trying to break that cycle by saying ahead of time that they're not just shooting for 2%, they're aiming for an average. And that could mean it could run hotter for a time, Brian. Yeah, that's a big deal, Steve. And uh, stick around for this conversation here if you, if you can. Uh, Jim, I want to get you back in here because I had to cut you off on those breaking news headlines here. How much is the Federal Reserve a part of, I mean, obviously not just today's move, but the move that we've seen in the prior weeks because, as Steve has done excellent reporting on, everybody expected this outcome. And so we pulled forward the buying 
on what happened today from virtual Jackson Hole. I think what you just said, Brian, nailed it on the head. And so it then it begs the question, why are we up today? And the answer is we're up on nothing fundamental. <coughs> we're up on sentiment. Now, why should low interest rates matter? It matters because it promotes the multiple on stocks higher. The problem is we've been saying that now for four or five months, and I don't think there's anything different uh, in the interest rate environment today versus the beginning of the month that would justify, say, a 40 percent uh, higher price on Apple, just as an example. But here to Steve is a question. You know, this is all fine and good that they're changing the methodology, but I think it's pretty weak tea in terms of actually getting inflation higher. We've got 15 million people unemployed. We've got manufacturing capacity utilization at 70 percent. We've got a heck of a lot of slack in the economy. This is the proverbial pushing on a string, don't you think, Steve? You know, I, I think that what the Fed did, Jim, and thanks for asking, is, is a piece of what needs to be done. Um, I, I wouldn't confuse two things that are going on, and I can understand why people would mess them together. There's an immediate secular issue in front, a cyclical issue in front of us, which is what you just described. The number of people unemployed now, the downturn in the economy from the epidemic. That, that is stuff the Fed and hopefully Congress will deal with with policy right in front of us. We may have something new happen in September, for example, a QE program. We'll have that debate some other time. What this is addressing, Jim, is a very long-term problem. I don't know where you were in the 70s. I was pumping gas and I was the most popular guy in town. I used to get free pizza from the local pizzeria when I filled up his tank. That engendered in me and many people my age, maybe a bit younger, certainly a bit older, this fear of inflation. This is a big move in saying we are no longer operating, looking over our shoulder at the shadow of inflation, that that learned experience and fear is something we must exercise from our psyches yeah. and we're going to go forward with employment being the bigger metric we're going to look at to keep that unemployment rate low and not fearing inflation. I knew I, li I, knew I liked you, Steve, because my dad owned a mobile station in L.A., and I, at nine years old, was pumping gas in 1980, so I feel you, brother. And now we're both, obviously, we've just both admitted child labor and graft on national television. So there's that. Uh, Rich Sapper. <laughs> I had like $4,000. I would have $4,000 in my pocket, Brian, at the end of the day. It was ridiculous. I want the impute tax on the imputed income from that pizza you took from that guy. All right, Rich, you think the Fed has exhausted most <laughs> of their capabilities here? Well, look, uh, the markets uh, are resting on a couple of issues, uh, one of which is uh, a continued involvement by the Fed, which I, I, I expect them to be very, very aggressive when necessary. But if you look at what they've done to date, they've cut the... Uh, funds rate to zero, eliminated reserve requirements, eliminated, lowered the rate on the interest on excess reserves. Uh, they've extended forward guidance and now they've uh, engaged in inflation averaging. So most of the tools that the Federal Reserve as we know it uh, have already been exhausted and really have had a tremendous impact. So the markets really are impounding future impacts from these same tools and my position is that they're going to be less impactful. Sure, they'll be able to lend to businesses, municipalities, states, cities. If the markets get gummed up, they'll come in aggressively. But my whole point with the Fed now is the impact of the Fed going forward will be less than it has been in the last few months. 
and we really need something out of the fiscal to bridge us until economic recovery resumes and that likely occurs when we start getting a vaccine now the abbott news is very significant today so uh, i'm I, I believe the fed is supportive yet less impactful yes. than uh than it has been well the vaccine would definitely more be more impactful on all of us in <laughs> human <laughs> around the world certainly uh, Kerry, but the Fed is definitely a part of this story here. What else do you think the Fed might have in its sort of quiver of arrows, so to speak, if anything? Well, I just want to address the point that a couple of people have made suggesting that um, the Fed is really pushing here and perhaps looking at the wrong things. But uh, the way I learned it, there's inflation when demand is greater than supply. And currently, there's an awful lot of supply if you think about different sectors. Um, energy, excess supply. Most commodities, excess supply. You look at things such as restaurants, services, apparel. Um, you know, we can come up with a long list. Labor. There's excess supply right now of labor. Where there isn't excess supply probably is healthcare. But I, I don't see how there are all the pressures that people talk about for inflation in the current environment. And, you know, Jay Powell is well aware of that. There, there are more concerns immediately about price, price falling rather than price rising, despite all the borrowing and all the financing that the government is doing. So that's the way we, we see it. All right. Yeah, you got a lot in, got a lot in effect lately, certainly the Fed and everything else. Steve Leisman, buddy, do appreciate that. Thank you very much. All right. In the meantime, right. buyers keep on buying. What they've been buying, technology staying mostly today red hot. The NASDAQ 100 up another half percent. You got names like Microsoft and Qualcomm. You got some charter all hitting new highs. Now, okay, Stephen Weiss, you have got the most tech exposure still. Every day we go higher. Are you hanging on? Are you considering selling, taking some profits here? Well, let's call this what it is. Anybody who's been in the market for any period of time, including everybody in the show, has to feel that we're getting a little greedy at this point. You look at some of the multiples. The multiple for Lululemon, which I own, which isn't a tech stock, has gone from, at the end of April, 56 times, which is already egregiously high, to 86 times today, without anything else taking place, just the market. Apple has gone from a multiple March on a PE basis of 20 times to 38 times. Nothing's happened. In the last month, the stock's had, you know, a ridiculous amount to its market cap, about $600 billion. So you have to have that gnawing sense that you're staying too long at the party. However, where else are you going to go? So I've rejiggered the portfolio somewhat, repositioned some things, got rid of some things that I bought that were in Jim's world, perhaps, that that worked quickly on the rotation and now aren't working. GM, Ford, I don't see the future being any brighter. General Dynamics I got rid of today. I'm also looking for stocks that are under the radar and I bought some of those. I bought MDLA, which Comcast uses, which me measures the satisfaction of both the employee and the customer. I bought another one, SMAR, which allows you to coordinate, all workers to coordinate their work product it's more, it, they're both SaaS plays, so to speak, but they use artificial intelligence and platforms in the cloud to coordinate work activity wherever you are. So those are the new ones. They're not cheap, 
but they're working. They either missed earnings or they continue to put up earnings. But I think you have to be very careful going forward. Like Rich, I expect the fourth quarter to have some volatility. If Biden wins and the uh, Congress, both, uh, both houses of Congress, Go to Democrats. I expect to see near knee-jerk reaction down, but I actually think it'll be much better for the economy and the markets going forward than a split Congress. So it's not without extreme caution that I go forward and with that gnawing sense of greed. Yeah, you got smart sheet there and Medallia. A couple new names here, at least for me and maybe in the uh, the halftime report crowd. Steve, thanks for bringing those up. Jim, I got to imagine you're loving this Qualcomm run, a 57% gain over the past 12 months, another all-time high for QCOM, which was a stock that, let's be frank, was left for dead a couple of years ago. <laughs> it had, Brian, it had some serious legal headwinds that it's resolved in the last 18 months. Uh, that's unlocked serious earnings power, uh, should, you know, should easily be $6 a share uh, in earnings over the next 12 months. I do want to add to Steve's point with numbers, okay? I said earlier the Russell, one, the Russell 1000 value down 10 percentage points on the year to date. Russell 1000 growth up 30 percentage points year to date. The point being this, to Steve's point, you cannot look at that 40 percentage point difference over the last eight months and say that it's healthy. I don't care what we're talking about in terms of secular trends and pandemics. That is not healthy, and it has to safely end by some of the flows going into the value sector, those financials and out of the technology that we're talking about. Okay. Well, it is not just technology that we're talking about. Check this out. Financials also leading the way today. I mean, really, how long has it been since so we've said that multiple times in a matter of a couple <laughs> weeks? As lagging sectors continue to get better, transports, industrials, financials, they're up as much as 12% this month. Rich Saperstein, are you advising your clients to move deeper into some of these names or sectors? Well, in the portfolio that we manage, uh, we're along uh, JP Morgan and Wells Fargo. And we don't see these sectors doing well uh, until the economy starts getting more traction. So we're underweight uh, financials. Uh, we're not adding to it. And uh, we're sticking with uh, our overweight in uh, growth equities. Anybody around the table been buying more financials in the last couple of weeks or days? You know, I, I'd actually be now, Brian, a, a seller of financials. When you, when you look at okay, what go ahead, said, Jim first, said and then, hold, be... Jim, Jim, Jim's a buyer. Let's go Jim buy first. Stephen Listen, Weiss sells okay. next. Jim, go ahead. I'll I'll make this quick. The problem with the trade is, you, is most people are counting on the 10-year Treasury yield to go up. All right, we're at 0.74, which is an incredibly high level for this environment. It's probably not going up any higher with what the Fed is doing. So the reason behind the trade has to be that the market is expecting loan losses, particularly in the big money center banks, that are there. The market's expecting losses to be much greater than they actually are. That depends on a continued reopening and healthy economic recovery from here. That's what the trade is, is that loan losses are much less than expected. And so that's why buying a Citigroup at 70% of book value makes sense. Stephen. So, so in my view, you know, I think you sell the banks on any pop. Here, here's what's happening. The SEC came out and said that you can now have a direct listing on a stock to raise capital 
whereas before that wasn't really the case. So it was for selling shareholders. That hurts the investment bank fees, which are the last bastion of real margin with investment banks. Then you've got the potential for Elizabeth Warren to be Treasury Secretary. I don't think it happens. That would be disastrous. And you've got, and you've got Powell that has come out and say rates are going to stay lower for a lot longer. So you don't have the steepening yield curve. So the blip, to Jim's point, in, in the 10-year is just that. It's going to be a blip. So take a look at what banks have done in Europe. Take a look at what they've done in Japan. We're in the same place. Yeah, it's a, it's a good comment there and a good discussion on the financials. By the way, appreciate that. Sunflower, Stephen Weiss, props to you with the nice flowers behind you, getting some kudos on that. All right, straight ahead on a more serious note, Hurricane Laura's path, the very latest on this massive storm as it makes its way through Louisiana. A lot of tough folks there, but they're facing a tough time as well. Look at that map, and there's a CNBC global headquarters, and we're back right after this. Markets at record highs. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. You can see the NASDAQ has turned just a little bit negative. But now let's turn to the very latest in Hurricane Laura. We get to NBC News correspondent Chris Pallone, who is live in Lafayette, Louisiana, which is just east of Lake Charles. Chris. Yeah, hi, Brian. And uh, in the last half hour or so, we're getting some of the strongest wind gusts we've had since the bulk of the storm came through overnight, somewhat surprising, but just goes to show exactly how big this storm was, even though, uh, you know, it's now approaching the Arkansas border with the eye. Uh, we're still in the tail end of it. The rain did end about an hour, hour and a half ago, so we haven't seen that sun starting to peek through, but still very high, possibly tropical storm force winds here in Lafayette, which is considerably inland. So that means that the risk for tree and power line damage, roof damage and stuff continues. I want to show you something because this is remarkable to me and this is one of the main concerns here in Lafayette. This is the Vermilion River or Bayou Vermilion as the locals call it. Yesterday it was going in the opposite direction. It was going from east to west. Now it is going from west to east and it has flooded over its banks. Locals told me to watch out for that because in this area when there's no place for this water going downstream, heading southward towards the Gulf of Mexico, when there's nowhere for it to go to drain, these rivers actually back up and start going the other way. They said when you see that, get to higher ground because you know it's going to be flooded. In this area, mostly roof damage, things of that nature, some flooding. Obviously along the coast, much more devastating damage. Crews are actually out getting out to some of these rural areas to see exactly how bad it was. It appears that the storm surge wasn't as bad as it was forecast.
has to be, but just because something isn't as bad doesn't mean it's not bad. So it's obviously very bad. We know that there are 600,000 people without power in coastal Texas and throughout Louisiana. The vast majority of them are here in Louisiana, about a half million. There are power crews from 20 states in the region going out to fix the power, but they warn that it could be days, maybe weeks before power comes up back on for all the customers. Brian? Yeah, scary there. Uh, Chris Pallone, Lafayette, Louisiana. Also, by the way, thank you, Chris. By the way, we're also following news of a uh, possible chemical plant fire on I-10 in Westlake, just west of Lake Charles, Louisiana. Get more on that. Certainly bring it to you. A lot of video out there trying to figure out exactly what plant that is. All right, speaking of, let's get now to Sue Herrera with the other headlines at this hour. Sue. And Brian, they have a shelter-in-place order in that area, and we're pursuing that story as you are at this hour. Here's what else is happening. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards is indeed asking some residents to stay indoors as that fire burns at the chemical plant near Lake Charles after it was hit by Hurricane Laura. We'll continue to follow what is now a developing story. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is predicting a very short conversation with the White House over more COVID-19 aid. She says Democrats are not budging and that the White House has to move. Pelosi is also recommending Biden not debate the president, citing the president's, quote, disgraceful behavior in previous debates and numerous lies in office. And a new hand sanitizer warning to tell you about from the FDA. This time, it's about packaging and flavoring, which could fool people into drinking the sanitizer by accident. The FDA warned some packaging resembles juice boxes, vodka bottles. Others even look like children's food pouches. Consuming the sanitizer could be extremely dangerous or even deadly. You are up to date, Brian. That is the news update this hour. I'll see you next hour. Back to you. You're going to have next hour's asteroids and locusts for us soon? Yes, perhaps, because that's next, because 2020 just keeps on giving. An asteroid covered in locusts. Sue Herrera, thank you very much. All right, up next, a bullish bet on the payment stocks. We're going to debate it. It's part of your call of the day. And as a reminder, if you do get out, if you're in Louisiana, Port Arthur, please don't. Anywhere else, you do get out. Download the CNBC app. Watch us live on the go anywhere. There you go. Dow's up 138. We're back after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, Visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today.
Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, it is a bullish call on the payment space today. That is your call today. Mizuho Security is initiating coverage of Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and Square, all with buy ratings. The firm calling it a payments PM's guide to early retirement. Get it? It's your call today. Carrie, you own PayPal and Visa. Why not the others? Well, we have over 10% of our portfolio in those two, so I think that's enough, Brian. Uh, PayPal is up 110% from the bottom in March. A visa has not performed as well, but it's starting to outperform nicely. It, it wasn't a sort of COVID first stock, but it's in the second wave as, as things start to reopen. 85% uh, of payments around the world are still made by cash or check. So there's begun this acceleration through the pandemic of digital payments and alternative forms of, of payment. What we're, we're seeing that everywhere we go um, because uh, it's accelerating. It's moving from every kind of merchant, CVS and grocery stores, et cetera, would prefer not to use cash. And so PayPal has been a fantastic business with an enormous number of new, uh, new clients, both on the merchant side and the user side. Venmo, as an example, is, has become a verb that I use even. And um, MasterCard, Visa, I mean, they've all done well with the acceleration we own visa we think they're going to grow their earnings in that uh, you know mid uh, teen range for the next few years and paypal 20 mm. percent plus so we think there's a lot a lot of uh, a lot of room left in those names nice bullish view there jim lebenthal what about you well the one that's at the top of my list to buy i don't own it yet is visa so i agree with what carrie just said so then the question is, why not buy it now? And it's very simple. Look, Visa is definitely tied to consumption trends. And in the short term, there's a risk to consumption in the U.S., particularly as we continue to negotiate over the next phase of stimulus. What I expect to happen, look, both sides are clearly very far apart. Sue just mentioned that on the headlines. And I think you're going to see uh, economic statistics start to come in disappointing. That needs to go on for a couple of weeks for the politicians to get serious, during which time I would not be surprised for Visa to come down a good 5% below 200 and let me pick it up on the cheap. So that's below 200 is where I'm in on Visa. Oh, you got $10, exactly $10 left to go if it falls that much. Jim, thank you very much. And by the way, the Mizuho analyst behind that call of the day will join the Power Lunch team today at 2 o'clock Eastern time. Tune in for that, Dan Dolev. All right, let's get right now to Rahel Solomon, who's got another bullish call out today. Who is this one on, Rahel? That would be for Peloton, Brian High. So yes, Goldman raising its estimate on Peloton to 96 bucks as it remains a buy. So analysts think that expectations are somehow still too low amid the strong demand. They expect revenue for the September quarter to be double what the consensus is, they're looking at $861 million on the top line versus the expectation of $474 million. And the analysts at Goldman are even more bullish than the company itself, saying they expect adjusted EBITDA of $92.4 million versus guidance of $55 to $65 million. And Brian, what a difference six months can make. So in late February on Power Lunch, actually, we covered, I was doing Market Flash, we covered a Needham note from uh, Laura Martin saying that essentially she expected the stock to rise to 40 bucks. That was the price target that day. It was about 28.93, saying that she expected that U.S. consumers might, just, might start to get nervous in the gyms and might start to increase Pelotons. Well, since that note in late February, Brian, the stock is up 170 percent 
And since the March lows, the stock is up almost 290%. And if you believe Goldman and this note, it's on its way to 96 bucks within 12 months. Brian. Big bullish call on the Peloton. All right, to Sunflower, Stephen Weiss, let's go. You sold Peloton and you regret it. Do you own the product, by the way? Yeah, I've never had so much regret over selling a stock that's doubled in such a short period of time. So yeah, so uh, I own a Peloton, love the product, it's phenomenal. What people miss is that they think it's just a bike, it's not. They've got this whole ecosystem. The classes are phenomenal, my whole family takes them. And yes, I'm not going back to a gym anytime soon. And I used to go five, six days a week. So I don't think gyms, even though they're opening New Jersey next week, 25% capacity, Peloton's still going to do great, and the wait time has not come down. It's improved. It's gone higher. So I traded the stock last week, made a little money on it, but again, stupidly sold it. If it pulls back at all with the market, I will get back in. This is not just a pandemic stock at all. So the justification, I mean, the enthusiasm is justified. Kerry? We don't own it. We'd like to own it. So we're waiting, as is Steve, for a for a pullback. Maybe we won't get it. I hope we do. Yeah, certainly has been a, a big bullish thing as well and a product that I guess a lot of people are just going to stick with. All right. Coming up, we are answering your questions next and Ask Halftime. And as we go to break, let's take a look at these markets here. You can see we've turned down a bit. Dow still up, now positive year to date, on at least on an intraday high basis. S&P fractionally higher. NASDAQ and Russell, though, they've rolled over a bit. They're down. Not a lot. But something to watch in this market. Oil down as well. A lot going on today. We're back right after this. All right, time now for Ask Halftime with the traders. are going to answer some of your questions. All right, Jim, you ready? This comes from Liam in Atlanta. What is the best way to diversify your portfolio or mitigate risk as a new investor? Well, look, this, is, this may seem like an overly simple answer, but I'd like you to have a little bit of cash on the sidelines to mitigate risk. Don't feel with the stock market at record highs every day that you need to have every single dollar invested. Hold 10, 15% cash on the sidelines. Now, I don't think there's a crash coming, but if you get a correction, then you're going to get the opportunity to buy stocks in all sorts of industries at attractive prices. So just hold a little bit on the side right now. All right, next up, and this is coming from Stephen Weiss from Rad. The guy's name is Rad, but he's from Texas, so it's appropriate. Does Amazon have momentum as a buy on its ride to a $2 trillion possible market cap? Well, I think it's endemic of the market. So the market's a momentum market, so Amazon does. I mean, it's still a stock that millennials want to own. Today, we saw DraftKings, which traded on headlines in the NBA, which for a long-term player is ridiculous. So it's a name that resonates with millennials, Robin Hood, and with me, frankly. I own it, big position. Yes, I think it keeps going higher. All right, this one is for Kerry from John in California. Blackstone has been stuck in the low 50s for a while. Do you see Blackstone moving higher, Kerry? Well, John, we do. Blackstone is the premier private equity firm. It has a lot of free cash available to spend on dislocation resulting from the pandemic and all kinds of opportunities in many asset classes. Uh, and of course, as institutions such as pension funds, state, 
retirement funds realize that interest rates are very low, they're moving more money into alternatives, and that plays into Blackstone's strength. All right, next up for Rich from Ken in North Carolina. He wants to start a position in Abbott Labs, maybe around that COVID test. Rich, what are your thoughts about Abbott? Yeah, we like the uh, stock. Uh, we've owned it for years. The uh, point-of-care antigen test is enabling people with 15 minutes and 5 bucks to get a result. Uh, so it's going to add roughly 2.5 to $2.7 billion in revenues next year. And we would buy the stock. Uh, you may want to wait for a little bit of a pullback. It's up pretty big today, but we like the stock. All right, good stuff there. And, hey, Stephen Weiss, we got a bonus question for you because... There is a big story out there on. on the TikTok potential ban. Oh, let's do it. Why is anybody talking about China unbanning, is that even a word, Facebook, Google, Netflix, Zoom, or Pinterest, the unban trade? Well, it actually has been a topic of discussion for quite some time. And uh, I don't know why the administration doesn't go for that. I mean, they talk about security issues with TikTok. They are there for sure. But they should also at the same time say, hey, we want to improve the business for our companies, but they're not doing that. It doesn't make any sense. And I don't know why anybody would protest the banning of TikTok because they just don't play fair. Another indication. All right, there you go. The un I've heard of U-Ban. It's a brand of coffee. That's the unban trade. There you go. All right, well, oil prices, they're actually down right now as Hurricane Laura strikes Louisiana. We're going to talk to the futures traders with what we could expect from the energy space in the days ahead. Halftime back after that, oil down 1.5%. All right, quick check now on the market so we come back because we are at session lows. Yeah, the Dow is still higher, and with today's gains, intraday went positive for the year briefly. Other markets, though, they have turned around. S&P 500, NASDAQ, Russell 2000, not a big catalyst here, not big drops, but certainly something to watch. The NASDAQ went down from up about a percent to down seven-tenths of one percent. Again, keeping an eye on that. All right, it's time now for our futures outlook. And crude oil in the red, despite Hurricane Laura making landfall, or maybe because of it on the Gulf Coast, as a Cat 4 storm and forcing a halt to 84% of oil production offshore. Joining us now is Jeff Kilberg of KKM Financial. I guess, Jeff, the idea here is that you're going to see demand fall faster than production. I think that's the initial reaction, Sully. Let me lay out the trade first before I give you three compelling reasons why I want to be a buyer of crude oil. But I want to be a buyer here in the October contract, Sully, 42.75. I have a target going up to $45, but I'm being mindful because I'm risking $1,250 to make $2,250, but I'm putting that stop just a buck and a quarter lower at $4,150. But let me talk about the three reasons why I see crude oil is going higher keeping the trajectory to $45. Certainly it's the U.S. dollar, that weakness. Despite the fact that it's back above 93, the U.S. dollar is weak, attracting assets to commodities. Secondly, we're seeing the technicals intact. And lastly, you hit the nail on the head. The production cut, we talked so much about demand. We have to talk about supply at some point. So I think in the wake of Hurricane Laura, is it going to be more damage to some of the platforms down there? Potentially, but also OPEC Plus. Don't forget OPEC Plus talked about they're going to be more compliant, at least they're going to try to be more compliant about this production curve. So I think for the first time in a long time, Sully, at least since March, we are going to see supply come into the equation, and that's why crude oil is going higher. Okay, bullish view on crude oil longer term outside of today and the short-term stuff there. 
Jeff Kilberg, always a pleasure, buddy. Good seeing you a lot. You bet. All right. Straight ahead on the Halftime Report, your final trades. Stick around. All right, welcome back to Halftime Report. Let's wrap it up by looking at these markets. As we said, they're losing steam and losing steam rather quickly as well. Dow only up 56 points right now. The other indexes, they have turned negative. All right, let's go around the horn now with our final trade. Stephen Weiss, why don't you kick off the final trade for us, buddy? Start buying lows. It's sold off. I think goes a lot higher with housing. Uh, L-O-W-E-S, lows. Okay, there you go. Rich. Uh, we buy. We bought a buyer of Medtronic to take advantage of the deferred elective and semi-elective procedures uh, that we expect to occur now that the COVID is not mm-hmm. occupying uh, the ICUs and hospitals as much as several months ago. As it was. All right, Jim Leventhal. Yeah, Viacom CBS uh, enjoying an upgrade from Wells Fargo today. They're pointing out the growth in uh, streaming business. But look, there's also sports. There's also the studio business. This is very undervalued. Okay, wow. Bullish call there. And Kerry Firestone, wrap it up. Home Depot, low interest rates, strong home sales, and we didn't plan it together, Steve and I. Very nice. you got a Home Depot, a Lowe's, a Viacom, CBS, and a Medtronic. Good wrap up there, everybody. Thank you very much. And with that, we wrap up this halftime. The exchange begins right now with the markets losing some steam. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.